This is Meditations for Misfits, and I'm Fred Gruy. In this episode, we'll consider a reading of John chapter 20, where the post-resurrection Jesus breathes on his friends, energizing them with his spirit to embark on the work of helping make the invisible God more visible. The gospel reading that Ellen uh, shared with us this morning uh, takes place over uh, eight days, two different, uh, or over a, a week's period. So the first portion of the reading was on Easter Sunday night. We celebrated Easter last Sunday. And then the second portion uh, is a week later. It's called the octave, uh, eight days later, of Easter. And in the, the first portion of the reading, the followers of Jesus have uh, gathered uh, in a room, and basically they haven't really gathered, they're hiding, they're terrified that what happened to Jesus is going to happen to them. And so they don't know what to do, they're scared, and their leader, the one that always made them feel safe and comfortable, is gone. And so they, they're just betwixt and between. So they've locked the doors, they're huddled together, and fortunately, Jesus walks through, and I mean literally walks through the door and is there in the room with them. And uh, his first words to them are shalom, peace to you. And as I referenced earlier in our welcome, shalom, be at peace, I'm with you. And he then goes on to breathe on them. And for me, this is an incredibly interesting, insightful, and brilliant telling of the story by this uh, author that we call John. Now, as I have told you before, as we've looked at the Gospel of John, this was written a good 90 years, or I'm sorry, 60 years after the death of Jesus, somewhere in the year 90 to 100, uh, was this gospel put together. So in the telling of this story, the, and I've referenced to you, I, the, the Gospel of John is one of my favorite books of literature, not favorite books of the Bible, favorite books of literature. The insight, the depth of irony, and the mystery in this book is just fascinating. Whoever put this together. So, the author is referencing back to the beginning in Genesis. Uh, in the book of Genesis, the very first words were, in the beginning, God created. God breathed on the chaos. And, and, the, and the, in the Hebrew of the book of Genesis, and it's also true in the Greek of the New Testament, but the word breath and spirit and wind are all the same word. It's the same word. So in the, the Hebrew, it's ruach. And so in Genesis 1, it says the ruach of God hovered over the chaos. And in some translations, vibrated over this mysterious, deep, chaotic waters. All that is creation. That's the way the Genesis story explains how the universe came to be. But the Spirit of God breathed on the chaos. And then later in Genesis, 
God breathed into the nostrils of the dust that God had formed. And that dust became life, Adam, a human being, out of the very dust, by the, by the power of the breath, the life-giving energy of the spirit that God breathed into the dust. Life came to be. So John, whoever the author of this was, recalls back to all of that. And it's resurrection day. And the thing that Jesus does is initiate the new creation and breathes on the chaos of these terrified followers, new life and energy. And so whatever is going on in that room that night, whatever this story means, part of it is that just as the first human beings were created by the breath of God, the author of John is telling us a new creation has come through the resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus breathes on these frightened disciples to become alive in a whole new way. New creations. That's just fascinating. One of my favorite theologians is a guy named Eugene Peterson who wrote, the, if you've read the paraphrase of the Bible, called The Message. That's Eugene Peterson. And Eugene Peterson writes about this particular interchange, that the spirit of God that moved over the face of the waters in the beginning continues to move, continues to create. The spirit that God breathed into the dust of the earth to create human life continues to make alive. Create is not confined to what the spirit did. It is what the spirit does. Now in the Genesis account, the human beings, the dust that had received this breath of God and became alive, were identified as the image of God, the imago dei in the Latin. That we are all created in the image of God. In, in, in my language, is that I've been pushing here since, I, since you folks hired me, is helping to make the invisible God visible. We are the image, in some fashion, imperfect as we are, of this invisible God, the Imago Dei. And in the Genesis account, the image of God was to be taken. God said, go forth into all the earth. Take my image everywhere. And it's really the only command that I am aware of in the Bible that God gave that we actually obeyed where God said, go forth and multiply. We've done that. I mean, there's over seven or eight billion of us now. We've, that's the one thing we, we did that one. But to take this image of God everywhere is what we are called, is this new creation to do, to make alive. Now, so as I say, our purpose in this time and place is to help make the invisible God more visible. There's a saying, I, I, I've shared with you on a number of occasions, I like to read a lot of Buddhist literature. I, I just find it wise and helpful and valuable. And there is a particular saying in Buddhism among the Zen folks of, of, of that philosophy or religion, 
whatever you think it is, that uh, to have an awakening, the Buddhist word often used is satori, to become awake, to see reality in all that is. Uh, in the, the Zen saying is, is before awakening, before satori, mountains are just mountains and rivers are just rivers. But when you see, when you have an awakening, mountains are no longer just mountains and rivers are no longer just rivers. And after an awakening, mountains are just mountains and rivers are just rivers. But it's a way of seeing that the whole universe is interconnected, interpenetrated, with this life energy of, of the creator. Like we can see the buds on the magnolias and the cherry trees and, and, and we see the, the daffodils coming up out of the ground. But to see beyond that, to see, as Thich Nhat Hanh would say, that in, when we look at the daffodil, we see the sun and we see the rain and we see the stardust that all came together to create what we see in the form of the daffodil. To see beyond seeing to see the, how it's all interconnected and we all are. That is seeing. As I would suggest, the author of the Gospel of John is encouraging us to do in the telling of the Gospel story. When you read the Gospel of John, you're going to come across the words seeing and believing a thousand times. Because that's the purpose of the telling, that we see in such a way so that we just don't see that the light is on, but that we see all that it's interconnected with and that we're all together in this. Seeing that leads to a trust in the divine creator and having a consciousness of being connected with the invisible God. And that it's no longer just enough for me to have food in my cupboard and enough money in my own bank account and enough health in my house. That, that because we're interconnected and all part of each other and all part of creation and part of the creator, that you need to have enough food in your cupboard and enough health in your house and enough money in your bank account. Now all of us, and that we're working for all of that because it's all together, we're all together. That's seeing and trusting that the creator, that the same energy that motivated Jesus, that energized him to do all that he did, he breathes on his followers. Now you can do it too. And go, go. And as you're going, and then there was this difficult line in the text, whoever sins you are forgive, they're forgiven, and whosoever you don't, you don't. And I would that means probably many things. And I don't know for sure that I know, but here's the way I read that. In the Gospel of John, the great sin is to not be consciously aware that we are in relationship, in connection with the creator of all creation. That's the great sin, to think that somehow I'm this distinct one little thing trying to work it out and to not see that I'm connected with the creator and all of creation. And so it's our mission as followers, as ones who have received the breath of Jesus to know, go help all beings realize we're connected. 
to the creator and creation and each other. That's why I say every week at the beginning, we come here for connection, not perfection. And to live into that and to live in such a way that we're working to help all beings live in harmony with each other, with the divine, and with the world that's been loaned to us and given to us. And to live in such a way that seven, eight generations from now, our grandchildren's grandchildren's grandchildren will have a hospitable and healthy planet to live upon. And to be in harmony. That's what this is. That's what we're called to do. And helping people do that is releasing them from the sin of it's just about me and what I want. That's what I think is going on in this text. And so how do we do that? How do we do that good stuff that I'm sure some of us agree with? I mean, you're sort of looking at me stone-faced here like, I don't know about this. But some of us agree with this agenda. That's why you come here. (laughs) Thank you, Susan. She's a preacher too. So that's why we come to a place like this on a Sunday morning. So how do we do that? And I think that's in the text as well. Because as it's given to us, Thomas wasn't there on Easter Sunday night. And being a good congregationalist, he wasn't going to trust the spiritual experience that everybody else had. He wanted to see for himself. I don't care what you people tell me. Unless I experience it, I'm not going to believe it. That's where doubting Thomas, you've heard of that. This is where it comes from, right here. So a week later, Thomas is in the room. And Jesus is there. He comes again. Shalom. Peace. And he says to Thomas, do you really want to see? Do you want to see beyond seeing? Do you want to see beyond, beyond seeing? Here are my wounds. And what I love, and I I referenced this in the children's moment, that Jesus is recognized by his wounds and doesn't say his scars. They've not healed over. He's got an open wound because he says to Thomas, put your hand in my side. Jesus is recognized by his wounds. The wonderful Henry Nouwen comments on this. Nobody escapes being wounded. We are all wounded people, whether physically, emotionally, mentally, or spiritually. The main question is not how can we hide our wounds so that we don't have to be embarrassed, but how can we put our woundedness into the service of others? When our wounds cease to be a source of shame and become the source of healing, we have become wounded healers. As Jesus was, is, and ever shall be. So here's what I suggest for us. How can we help make the invisible God more visible to be icons of of God the way Jesus was? How can we do that better? I would suggest by allowing our wounds to show, by living as honestly as we can, by being as real people as we really can be, and by learning to become vulnerable to each other, of sharing where I hurt. And because that is an open connection to invite others to come in and experience the healing, the safety, the acceptance, the love that we all crave in a barricaded room 
where maybe, just maybe, the risen one might show up and breathe on all of us and make us all new creations, alive, connected, and living in harmony with the Holy One that we call God.